It's my great pleasure to uh, open up this inaugural lecture tonight, Professor Dorian Fuller from the Archaeology Department. My name is Mary Fulbrook, I'm Dean of Social and Historical Sciences, so I get all the fun of coming to hear professors' inaugural lectures and getting to know about their departments, their interests, and uh, hearing what they have to say. Tonight we have Stephen Shannon, the Director of the Institute of Archaeology, doing the introduction. And Professor Martin Jones has very kindly come from Cambridge on a train that was uh, risking not delivering him on time uh, to do the thank you uh, at the end of it. After that, you're all very warmly invited to a reception downstairs in the garden room. So I'll hand over to you, Stephen, to provide the introduction. Uh, I should apologise in advance for the fact that I've got a terrible cold, so if I start croaking in the middle of this introduction, then you will understand why. Uh, but it's, of course, a great pleasure to introduce Dorian Fuller this evening as Professor of Archaeobotany. And Dorian is one of the most remarkable scholars I've come across in the whole of my career. I think we're extremely lucky to have him here. And his record already is simply astonishing and would do credit to someone twice his age. Dorian did his undergraduate degree at Yale. He was a double major in anthropology and in org organismal biology, obtaining exceptional distinction in both and graduating magna cum laude, as, we as well as winning various prizes along the way. From Yale, he went to Cambridge to do his master's and then his PhD. And in 2000, immediately after completing his PhD, he joined the Institute as lecturer in archaeobotany and then was uh, promoted to reader in 2009. And during this time, he's also spent short periods as a visiting professor at Peking University and Shandong University and at the Research Institute for Humanity and Nature in Kyoto. I think there's no doubt that Dorian is the world-leading archaeobotanist of his generation and one of the top few in the world. But he's also much more than this, I think. Whereas most workers in this area tend to be relatively narrowly focused, both in terms of their regional field of interest and the topics on which they work, Dorian is the opposite. Most people know the archaeobotany of a single region Dorian is a recognized authority across the archaeobotany of virtually the whole of the old world. His initial region of interest was in the origins of agriculture and its social and ecological context in South Asia, on which he did his PhD. That led him onto an interest in how the details of archaeology and archaeobotany of this region could relate to the details of the linguistics, especially of the Dravidian language family. And it's entirely characteristic of him that he began a project on Dravidian historical linguistics and the etymology of terms for food plants, resulting in a paper on Dravidian historical linguistics, which provided an alternative indigenous perspective for the diversification of Dravidian languages. And subsequent work by linguists and geneticists has come to similar conclusions to those of Dorian. He's also made contributions to the archaeobotany of Africa and to the archaeology of Nubia, taking part in several field projects in Sudan, including directing an expedition to the fourth cataract of the Nile in 
And this involved directing survey and excavations on a number of Nile islands. Uh, this, though, may not have been his finest hour. They apparently ran out of clean water after three days and were reduced to drinking from the Nile. Not, obviously not a good idea. And dehydration problems were not helped by the fact that Dorian himself apparently refused the local mode of transport to site, i.e. a donkey, and preferred walking through the Sahara himself. On another occasion in that same project, their jeep broke down in the middle of the desert, and they were only saved by a group of Chinese engineers working on the nearby dam. Anyway, he survived all this, as did his team, and since 2004, he's been working in particular on the archaeobotany of China and changing received ideas about the origins of rice domestication. But again, it's typical of Dorian that this work isn't narrowly focused. He's been integrating the prehistory of rice and agriculture in China into a much wider comparative framework, looking at the evidence for the development and spread of rice not just through China, but through South and Southeast Asia. And again, as a typical example of his breadth of interest, he's also got involved through this work in looking at how the evidence for early rice domestication and cultivation relates to the now well-known Ruddiman hypothesis about the origins of global warming and looking at the extent to which wet rice cultivation was associated with the rise in global methane uh, emissions in prehistory. And yet again, in a completely different direction, he's been working on macro-scale contrasts between East Asia in terms of its agriculture, cooking, and archaeological sequence, and West and South Asia in work which he's done and published with Mike Rowlands in anthropology. Now, all this first-hand multi-regional research has placed Dorian in a unique position to make comparative studies of plant domestication and the origins of agriculture. And this is the subject of his current uh, European Research Council advanced grant. And it's also led to increasing interdisciplinary, res interdisciplinary research with plant geneticists working on agricultural origins. And this work has led to a number of high-profile publications. In fact, if you look at Dorian's publication record, it really is kind of staggering, I think, is the only word. In fact, I looked at his web page yesterday, and for 2014, he already has 22 publications. <laughs> Uh, there were 21 in 2013, and if you go back, you'll find those same sorts of numbers being repeated for the last decade or so. And the number of his publications is, is really matched by his creativity, and obviously demonstrated not just by the high-profile journals in which his publications appear, but also in the numerous international uh, invitations he receives to speak. His record of grant-getting is equally stellar, with grants as PI not just from the European Research Council, but from Natural Environment Research Council, AHRC, the Leverhulme Trust, the British Academy, not to mention many successes as co-investigator on other people's projects. But his contributions to UCL are not just limited to his exceptional research. He's always carried a significant teaching load at undergraduate and master's level, and his teaching has been consistently innovative with the development of new degrees and courses and the introduction of novel methods, reflected among other things by his successful applications for the development of online teaching resources. 
Dorian is also famous in the Institute, and much more widely, for the unique and charming style of his dancing. <laughs> his preference for Hawaiian shirts, which we see only a toned-down version, I think, tonight, or at least it's hidden by his jacket, and an amazing capacity to focus on what's important, despite whatever confusion surrounds him. So I could go on at considerably greater length, but now I'd better stop and call on Dorian to give his inaugural lecture, Growing Society is the Archaeobotany of Food Production and the Globalization of Agriculture. Dorian. Uh, th thank you, Stephen. Can you hear me all right at the back? I guess that works. Okay, so I'm going to, uh, well, you can see my title there, talk about the uh, archaeobotany of food production. Um, and I, I thought I'd start with uh, a little bit on sort of very broad background and a little bit on the history of research in this area, especially history, history of research in this area at UCL in the Institute of Archaeology, before I move into some of my own uh, recent work and, and thinking. So, of course, the world we live in today is a world which is largely um, anthropogenic. So the landscapes everywhere are changed and cut up into fields and managed uh, woodlands and so forth. But this is relatively recent in evolutionary terms or geological terms. So if you think of modern humans as our species being around maybe 200,000 years old, farming is agriculture cultivation has been around for less than 5% of that time. And for most of the world, uh, the places that got farming a bit later on, even less. So maybe the last four to 5,000 years. Um, and so, and in this period, in the last 10,000 years that have had agriculture, the human population has risen from estimates of five, between five and 10 million, depending on who you believe, for 10,000 years ago, to seven billion. So agriculture has been a, a very important part in changing uh, the nature of human population and society. So I think it's a big issue in terms of understanding it. Archaeobotany is, as, as, it, as it says here, it's, it's, it's a, 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 a primary way of investigating uh, how people have used and managed plants over the long term. Now, interest in the origins of agriculture is uh, as old as the Institute of Archaeology itself and has, has been a major topic in archaeology for a long time. And of course, uh, for many archaeologists, uh, perhaps the most influential figure in terms of the study of the transition to agriculture and, and broader issues in prehistory of Europe and Britain uh, in the last century has been Gordon Child who of course was director of the Institute. Uh, and there's a, a quotation here from uh, one of his early books on uh, where he talks about the origins of farming, New Light on the Most Ancient East, where he makes the point that deliberate cultivation of food plants was an economic revolution and perhaps the greatest in, the his in human history uh, after the, the use of fire. Uh, and so he really set an agenda in terms of looking at uh, the origins of agriculture as a major transition in the long, long, long term of human history and in his subsequent book, he, he refers to this as the Neolithic Revolution. And that's a label which has stuck, although it's a label which I'll slightly try to unstick a little bit tonight. Because it, it sets it up as something which, is, uh, which makes a fundamental, very rapid transition between what came before and what came after. And I, uh, we're going to slow down that transition tonight and suggest that there's an interesting process uh, that makes up that revolution. Uh, another figure who has... Um, in indirect ways influenced uh, the thinking on this, and, and my own thinking on this is, was initially a lecturer in botany at UCL back at the turn of the century, the last century, Arthur Tansley. Uh, he's probably best known from when he was uh, subsequently a professor at Oxford 
and trained most of the botanists who were sent out to the Botanical Survey of India and other parts of the British Empire, uh, and, and for really developing the concept of an ecosystem and the study of plant communities as influenced by both uh, non-biological uh, conditions, climate and soil, as well as competition with other uh, organisms. But he was very much aware, which was uncharacteristic of his time, in the importance of studying human-modified environments um, and, and the interaction between uh, human impacts and, and uh, the plant, plant communities. And amongst his more famous students are Harry Godwin, who really was the founder of pollen studies and vegetation history of, 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 of Britain, uh, and Jeffrey Dimbleby, who's, who's the, who was um, a professor at the Institute of Archaeology and really the founder of the archaeobotany lab that we have today. So Dimbleby, who was trained in, in Oxford at the Forestry School with, um, with Tansley, uh, was initially interested in the history of the floor and the history of vegetation in, in Yorkshire and, and approached that through pollen studies, so looking at how pollen could reflect changing environments. But he moved increasingly in, in, into being interested in, in the human role in that and how you could uh, retrieve pollen and other plant remains from archaeological excavations, from sealed paleosoils, and to look at this sort of long-term uh, history of, of um, human interaction with the landscape. And he really wrote what is, I, I suppose, the first book, the first textbook in the English language on archaeobotany, plants, and archaeology. The first edition was 1967. Uh, and he was professor of human environment at the Institute. And really, uh, uh, the, the basis of, many of, our, of some of our collections, uh, reference collections, go back to, to his period at the Institute. And as you can see from the, the quotation here, uh, he very much emphasized the role of, of humans and the sort of inextricable relationship between the environment and human activities over the long term. Um, and uh, just to show his sort of role in the history of the discipline, I did a sort of one of these Google Ingram viewers, which is one of these Google book searches, which allows, which charts the number of books per year that contain a certain word or phrase. Um, it's kind of a fun thing to waste time on, but anyways. Uh, and you can see there the red line is books uh, and this is between 1950 and 2000, books that use the word archaeobotany. The yellow line is paleoethnobotany with the American spelling, and the dark blue is paleoethnobotany with the, the, your, the British spelling. The green line is the phrase carbonized seeds. But essentially what you can see is, uh, and I put arrows there to mark when Dimbleby's key early books came out, and one of his other important uh, uh, influences was through conferences he jointly organized with the then UCL Anthropology I guess lecturer, Peter Ucko, who was uh, also subsequently a director uh, at our institute, um, one of which led to this uh, still very influential book, I think, The Domestication and Exploitation of Plants and Animals, Ucko and Dimbleby, uh, which came out in 69. You can see that the growth of archaeobotany as a term that people use really comes after these two books. Um, and the last uh, uh, 40 years has really seen a growth in, in, in this sort of concept. Now, when, after Dimbleby was retired, he was succeeded by uh, David Harris, who uh, sadly passed away over the Christmas period, uh, who uh, became moved from UCL Geography to become professor of human environment at the Institute, and subsequently its director uh, into the early 1990s. Uh, and he was very much a global comparative thinker in terms of studying uh, the origins of agriculture and subsistence in its broadest sense, so comparing hunter-gatherer systems, early farming systems, and really drawing on ethnographic and historical sources as well as archaeology. Uh, and this is one of his more famous diagrams which went through various iterations, which shows a kind of spectrum 
from uh, at the top there of wild plant food pro procurement through pre-domestication cultivation into agriculture and domestication. And th th his thinking on this topic has been very influential, I think, to many people. and was certainly very influential to me uh, as a student and when I was starting out in this field. Uh, and personally, after I joined the Institute, he was very much a friend and a mentor um, often on, 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 and we talked often on issues of, uh, re related to this. One of his earlier papers uh, was an attempt called Alternative Pathways to Agriculture to really map out uh, in the 1970s with much less evidence than we have today, uh, different trajectories from hunting and gathering into farming, uh, into domestication, including trajectories that didn't end in what we would recognize as agriculture today. Um, and to try to relate those trajectories to pre-existing traditions of technology, so techniques of harvesting, um, and to suggest that, that you could come up with some general patterns in terms of what uh, led on to agriculture and what didn't, and, and really make comparisons. And in some ways, this is very much uh, similar to the, some of the directions of interest I have now, and my ERC project is called Comparative Pathways to Agriculture. Uh, so it very much was uh, influenced by this, 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 this paper. Um, now when uh, uh, David Harris was uh, head of human environment, one of the people he brought to uh, the Institute of Archaeology and appointed uh, as, as ultimately as a lecturer in archaeobotany and, and then later as a reader uh, was Gordon Hillman. Uh, and for many archaeobotanists working in uh, Europe and the Near East and, and some other parts of the world, he's been a, a major influential figure. He, he trained a lot of the archaeobotanists of my generation and um, uh, uh, and some older than, than me as well. Um, and uh, then he retired in 98, I think I've got that right, I didn't actually check my dates, but 97, 98 he retired. Um, and he, uh, he had three major areas, I would say, of contribution which have in influenced uh, archae archaeobotany a lot uh, and have influenced the, the, what I'm going to talk about tonight. And one is, very early in his career, he, he carried out very important studies of traditional agriculture but not just the agriculture crop processing. So what people did with crops after they were harvested, the activities, the tools, and what, the, what that did to structure what we find archaeologically. He was really the first one to recognize that what we find in archaeological site is a reflection and a product of particular human activities and processes that structure that assemblage. And you can potentially then get back at those activities through the remains we find archaeologically and, and use that as a kind of metric for comparing different societies in terms of how they organize crop processing. Uh, he also carried out very important botanical field studies in the Near East, in Turkey uh, and Syria. Um, and much of our reference collection that we have at UCL and the Institute of Archaeology is, is from his collections in the field of both things like the wild wheats and barleys, but also all the other stuff that grew in those habitats. We have, he did really, really detailed ecological surveys uh, and collecting, which has built up the collection that we're able to use today. And the other photo here at the top is of him doing some harvesting experiments on uh, wild einkorn wheat. So he decided if you wanted to understand the domestication process, you needed to, to try your hand at harvesting a wild cereal using the kind of technologies that hunter-gatherers or early farmers might. Uh, and this has been a very influential experiment. Um, I'm going to disagree with his conclusion from it, however, but I think it set us on the, on the path to thinking about uh, domestication as something that results from systematic human activities and something that we can start to reconstruct archaeologically. And prior to that, people really hadn't 
uh, approached it in terms of understanding the practices that lead to the changes in, in plant morphology. And this is a quotation which he suggested that selection for domesticated or semi-tough rakist forms of wheat and barley was, first of all, unconscious. People didn't set out and intend to change the genetics and morphology of the plant. It was an unconscious process that resulted from specific husbandry methods, so specific methods of agriculture. And what this chart shows is the conclusion of that work, which he published uh, with a geneticist Davies, um, which shows that based on these experiments and certain extrapolations and assumptions, you ought to be able to domesticate a wild plant in 50 years, 100 years. So just a few human generations. Uh, and this shows, shows this, this process here. So particularly very fast, particularly as quickly as 20 or 30 years. Uh, and this really um, became one of the orthodoxies, I think, uh, in the 1990s of how we understood plant domestication and the origins of agriculture. Um, and there are sort of three orthodoxies which I'm going to question tonight and say that we've moved to new understandings. And one is that there were just a very few places in the world, worldwide, where agriculture originated and that most agriculture was really the dispersal or the influence of those places. And some, some authors would make it as minimal as three, Mexico, the Near East, and China. Others accepted maybe up to 10. Uh, and I think it's at least double that. I think we can demonstrate that it's likely to be at least double that today. And also, as, as, as Hillman's experiments and, and inferences suggested, domestication was rapid. It was a rapid directional process. Um, and it was likely that it happened in just a few human generations. So in, in archaeological terms, it was almost instantaneous. And that made it a revolution. It fit this concept of a Neolithic revolution very nicely. And also, there's this notion that the domestication was really it was a rapid transition and it happened right at the beginning of the Holocene. So this major climatic transition from the Pleistocene to the Holocene around 11 and a half thousand years ago was the major sort of trigger. Uh, and so I'm gonna come back to each of those uh, orthodoxies in turn. Uh, but to do that, to go back to sort of where I began my own career, which was South, South India, um, really what I set out to do was just to do some archaeobotany in South India and, and find how agriculture began there. And my assumption partly was that, well, it ought to have spread from the Near East. It ought to have a Near Eastern signature. And then maybe there's some local things that happen. But what, what, what I found was uh, that we could make a case that that isn't so, and that there is an independent center of origin. But it didn't appear on any of the maps prior to that. So here's a sort of classic uh, map at the top from Jack Harlan, public, a very influential uh, paper in science from 1971, which he has C1, A1, and B1. Those are the three centers of origin here, Me Mexico, the Near East, and China. And he, saw, he, he suggested that each of these was essentially a secondary derivative uh, of influence from the, one of those three centers. And then through the 1990s, a major sort of textbook from Bruce Smith at the Smithsonian um, and subsequent papers by him is, has tended to map origins this way with sort of 10 areas. Um, and so that's the sort of or orthodoxy. But uh, as you'll see, in, in neither of those does India really feature as a, as a place. Well, in, in those days, in the 1990s, not that long ago, in the late 1990s, our, our South India was essentially terra incognita for archaeobotany. Um, very little work had been done. Some work had been done in the northern peninsula, in this area up here, but nothing really had been done in the south. Uh, and so I set out to just sample as many sites as we could using primitive methods of bucket flotation and local, local help uh, and so forth. And so in, the, in that period of the late 90s and 
uh, shortly after I started the institute, we, we sampled lots of sites in this area, maybe about 15 in total, subsequently some further south. And from that, we started to get a picture of uh, early crops and early agriculture in this region. And it really started to put this region on the map uh, because uh, what, we could, what we found was that we had the signature for a subsistence and agricultural system which, didn't, which was unlike anywhere else and didn't come from anywhere else. Now, the reason I went to South India, one of the reasons it was attractive was it had this, these curious features in the landscape, the so-called ash mounds, and this is one of the ash mounds here. And what essentially this is is a big heap of burnt cattle manure, cattle dung, uh, from uh, about 4,000 years ago or 4,500 years ago. Um, and you can see it's quite tall. There's some people there. And, and this is basically ash from burning cattle dung over and over again, year after year. And where some of these have been excavated, they appeared to have been uh, developed on the top of cattle pens. So this is our best excavated example of one of these at a, at a, at a different site uh, called Booty Hall. And you've got the ash mound here and a bit of a, a stone fence that marks the pen, pen edge. And then off the side of the ash mound, a small area of village settlement. Obviously not all excavated are small huts. So we knew these guys had cattle and they have some sheep and goat as well, but we knew nothing about their plant subsistence. So it seemed like a good place to go to look for early agriculture. Uh, and perhaps expecting that it might be introduced wheat and barley from the Near East at this stage. Uh, but what I found was a, a sort of wealth of, of, of small seeds that we would all call millets, which are really a nightmare to identify. And so I spent a lot of time trying to work out the identification of all these millets and encountering in the local markets in India and in herbaria uh, and other botanical collections all these uh, sort of obscure minor millets of India. And there's lots of, and many of these species are native to India. Um, and so I spent a, I've spent a lot of time in the minutiae trying to identify, especially this one here in the middle, tried a place to Brachiaria ramosa, uh, which no one's ever heard of. The English name is brown top millet. And there's only a handful of villages that still grow it today. But 4,000 years ago, it was the dominant staple grain of southern India. And we can demonstrate that across all of these sites. Uh, in addition to millets, especially brown top millet, we had a, a good range of pulses, so your Indian dolls, things like the mung bean uh, and tour doll, the sort of yellow split pea that you'll find often in Indian restaurants, and a number of others, horse gram and hyacinth bean. Uh, and so that, that launched me into thinking about where these species came from. So what we found at these South Indian sites recurrently was these four taxa, so two millets, um, which I think is brown top millet and a kind of companion crop, and then a couple of, of beans. And these are things that didn't come from somewhere else. But what I also discovered is that actually where they came from was not really very, very well understood. Because what hadn't been done in India was some of the sort of background botanical work of working out where the wild ancestors of some of these species grew, what their habitats were, what their distributions were. And this kind of work had been done many decades ago for wild wheat and barley, and it had been done for wild rice, and the wild beans of Meso Mesoamerica, but no one had bothered to sort of pull together this data. So I I've, can't say that I've done all of it, but I did a little bit of going around uh, herbarium collections in India and trying to find where people had collected wild, uncultivated populations of some of these. And what that allows you to do is start to make maps of where these things occur. So this is a map uh, that I put together after my herbarium survey of the wild mung bean, sort of in green, and it's its black cousin, the wild uh, erd bean. Uh, and you'll see that they overlap in some areas and they don't overlap in others. And so we can get some sense of what, what their wild habitats are. Um, 
And then we can also then use those wild habitats and map archaeological finds, both from work I've done, which was all down in this area, and published examples from various Indian projects. Uh, and what you find is that there are certain, certain areas that have uh, early Hmong bean, especially these South Indian sites, and there's some up in the Northwest, and other areas that have early Erd bean, especially focused up here. So that starts to give us a sense that we're looking at the centers of domestication for these species. And so the wild Hmong bean is, uh, is, occurs sporadically in these hills of, of the Eastern Peninsula, and it's probably a, from this zone that it's being domesticated and, and becoming part of the subsistence system in, in South India. Uh, so at the, at the end of all that, which was, of, uh, let's say, the first decade of my research, really, um, I think we can safely say that we've at least put South India on the map. And this was a, a sort of popular newsy piece in science published in 2007, where for the first time on a map of agricultural order, they go, mung bean, horse and millets in South India. So we put them on the map. Um, and, and, and what we were able to do, more important than putting it on the map, was start to think about the context in which agriculture emerged in this region. So what is the environmental and social context? It's not early. It's not 10,000 or 11,000 years ago. It's probably about 5,000 years ago. And we're getting the emergence of, of plant cultivation and, and local domestication from forest margin species on the margin of the savanna. And so in this map, I've tried to map uh, an ecological zone, a savanna corridor, uh, in South India, which would have been attractive for cattle pastoralism, and the margins of the savanna would have been where these, the wild ancestors of these indigenous crops uh, occurred. And so in this area, we would have had this emergence of a, of a food production system about 5,000 years ago. Um, okay, now I'm going to move to another part of the world where I started working in 2004, which is China. Uh, and as I was working in South India, I became increasingly interested in, in rice and where the rice in India came from. And we did, I got involved in some work in North India where there seems to be a local center for early rice cultivation in the Ganges Plains. But if you want to put rice in context, you also need to step outside India and work in other, other regions. Uh, and just from teaching, it was clear to me that, we, that I didn't really understand what was going on with early agriculture in China. It wasn't very accessible. So the best way to understand that was to go there and meet Chinese archaeologists and start to work, perhaps, on Chinese archaeobotany. And it happened in 2004, my, my first sort of visit, when I was mainly just trying to visit sites and give a few lectures on, about India and about archaeobotany, uh, that they just finished the first season of excavation at this site called Tenloshan, shown here. Uh, and then after the 2007 excavations, uh, you can see it's uh, all these wooden posts. It's a waterlogged site, so it lies below the water table, so you've got excellent preservation of bits of architectural remains and wooden paddles and wooden artifacts. Um, and it's now preserved under a site museum, but it, it's from a, a culture which for archaeologists is quite famous, the Hemudu culture, which was often assume, uh, inferred to be and, and, and written up as being intensive rice farming. But what struck me when I uh, visited the site and then subsequently started collaborating on the archaeobotany there is it was not full of rice, it was full of all these wild foods. My first impression was, why are there so many tens of thousands of acorns and storage pits full of acorns? My textbooks tell me these guys were rice farmers. Why are they eating so many acorns? Now, I grew up in California, and in California, the native peoples, of course, ate a lot of acorns, and they tended not to bother with agriculture, because acorns are a very good source of carbohydrates. They're abundantly available in the right sort of environments, and they're storable. Um, and so, 
uh, I really started to question the whole notion that these guys were intensive rice farmers 7,000 years ago. Uh, and what we found through systematic archaeobotany on the site was not just lots of acorns, but lots of water chestnuts and another aquatic nut, the, the Urale, the, the, the fox nut. But we did also find quite a lot of rice. So there was a lot of rice there. And we, we now know that that rice is being cultivated. And I'll show you in a minute that it's undergoing domestication. So what we have is very much a mixed economy with, with a heavy hunter-gatherer component and uh, rice cultivation. Um, but that um, starting work on that led, led me to question uh, you know, whether, whether these guys were really agriculturalists as we normally think of them and as they'd normally been presented. And this diagram, which was from a, a sort of first uh, uh, paper summarizing the, the, the previously published data really, uh, you'll see has a version of the David Harris diagram of, of wild plant food procurement production and early cultivation or pre-domestication cultivation and agriculture, where I've tried to stick a, 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 a southern Chinese timeline on it, which is more or less right. There's a few things which we might shift a little bit earlier, but it's more or less right. It, ups, it raised a number of eyebrows in China because rather than these guys being early rice farmers, they were suddenly acorn eaters and rice farming was later. And not everybody locally, including the excavator of the site, really liked that idea. But in, in any case, that seemed to be with the evidence suggested. But the other thing that the site preserved in spades was remains of rice. And this was really a, a pivotal moment for, for me and I think for the, the study of uh, rice archaeobotany, not just by me, but by others. And we had lots of these little things here. You can see carbonized, charred versions here. So of course, rice grains, one recognizes rice spikelets, but we had all these little spikelet bases. And this is just the base of the rice husk where it attaches to the plant. And the reason that's important and exciting is because this is one of the places in the rice plant which shows the most dramatic change between the domesticated form and the wild form. So in wild rice, when the grains mature and they're ready to fall off the plant, they simply fall off. And here's a, here's a panicle of wild rice. And if you grab it, the mature ones, which are brown, fall off. And, that's, and they fall into the soil and they reproduce the rice plant. And what that means on the spike the base, you have a, a smooth, round scar because they basically mature and they fall off on their own accord. In the domesticated rice, if you go out and harvest some modern domesticated rice, they don't fall off. The ear gets heavier and heavier and heavier and it droops over and then it gets harvested like this farmer here harvesting it with a sickle. Um, and, and that leaves behind a very different scar, a kind of torn off scar. So if you want to harvest wild rice, you need to do something like this experimental harvest here, which is using a basket to paddle the, the mature, maturing spikelets off, whereas the domesticated stuff is quite different. And we had these in the thousands from uh, Tin Lo Shan, which meant uh, for the first time really in the study of rice, we could actually try to quantify those which are, have a wild type seed dispersal versus those which are reliant on human harvesting and see whether there's change over time. Uh, and lucky, lucky for me, uh, we, had, we, we have what I would, would now regard as a tipping point. We do have change over time. And so in the earliest uh, samples from the site uh, shown here, you have, a, you have a higher proportion of the wild type and a lower proportion of the domesticated type. And the proportion of the domesticated type increases and the wild type decreases over time. And this is a much later site for comparison. And so we have at the tipping point in, in the, by the end of this sequence, the domesticated type now outnumbers the wild type, but it's by no means finished. It's somewhere just in the middle of the domestication process. Uh, and that was, you know, the first time that that had been documented in rice and it was quite exciting. Uh, it also was quite slow. It didn't fit this notion. You know, we're looking at a 300 year period and it's only changed 
12 percent. Uh, this is not the 20-year domestication process that had been postulated based on uh, Gordon Hillman's work on, on wild wheat. Um, but to understand the process then of rice, uh, early rice cultivation in China, it was necessary to move on to other sites and later sites and finish the sequence. So I then uh, became involved in a uh, work on a site called Xiao Shan, which we're still working on, to be honest. Uh, it's got a lot of samples, it's quite rich. And what happens at around 4000 BC in, in parts of the lower Yangtze Valley is you start to get preserved field systems, and that's what's shown here. And this is the site of Chodun, which was excavated about 10 years ago. Uh, and this is uh, a sampling at, at Xiao Shan in 2008, um, which was contingent on the high-speed rail line being built from Beijing to Shanghai, which goes right through this site. Uh, and so there was a rescue excavation. The site was already known, but there was a rescue excavation in April 2008. And I happened to be lecturing in Beijing at the time and uh, got wind of this through uh, mainly through my wife, who's a Chinese archaeologist, and we basically hopped on a plane two days later and were down there so we could set up a sampling program for archaeobotany, um, which, which, uh, which we've done. And what you see here is these little field systems. So these are little fields a few meters across. So it's not like a modern rice field at all. Um, but the reason that's important is it allows people to manage the water. So there's, there's something, uh, something about uh, the wild ancestor of rice, which is slightly atypical of, crop, of many crops, and makes it slightly a challenge, which is that it likes to grow in wetlands, uh, and it has a, an annual form, shown here, and a, and a perennial form. And it seems to be it's this perennial form, which is first domesticated in China. And um, the problem with the perennial form is, one, it grows in relatively deep water, and when the grains fall off, they sink into the water. But also, it doesn't produce a lot of grains. Because it's perennial, it puts its effort into growing new leaves and new shoots and new roots. And so it's not a very good grain producer and there are populations reported observations on populations in in some of the uh, western lakes in southeast asia that never set seed um, however if you take those out of those wet places and put them in a pot in a lab and dry them out they start to produce seed and so the the grain production increases as a response to drought or as a response to lack of water so one of the reasons why these early field systems probably are the way they are is actually about controlling dryness. It's about being able to dry the plants out easily, drain them, and induce, induce this increase in seed production and this drought response. Eventually, that, the genetics catches up to that and, and it becomes an annual crop. But early on, you need intensive management systems, and so that's what these early field systems are doing. They're kind of completing the domestication process through manipulating uh, the ecology. Uh, of ultimately, then, rice is domesticated. The genetic changes catch up. It becomes an annual plant, and then, then it moves back into proper wetland agriculture, and what we would think of today as rice paddies. And this is uh, shown most dramatically in the site of Mao Shan, which was excavated, uh, I guess, in 2010-11. Uh, it's now all apartment buildings. It's outside Hangzhou, and we're still finishing the samples from this site as well. But these black soils, you can see, are uh, paddy field systems, and they're about half-acre squares. You can see in the plan here, the red lines, those are the walkways, the embankments between the fields. So here, you're, by uh, 2400 BC, you're getting a real artificial landscape that we would recognize today as rice agriculture with big square fields, linear embankments, some canals between them. Uh, and the, the evidence from the, the archaeobotany suggests that it's wetter again. So it goes from being wet in those wild transitional rice at Tenlochon to dry and back to wet again. And this rice agriculture, of course, supports the emergence of what we might think of as civilization and social complexity and hierarchical societies. 
uh, and these are some examples of some of the material culture from the Liangju culture, famous for its jades, its carved jades, and its, its fine, fine black ceramics, and of course very rich burials in, in large settlements. And that's ultimately supported by the development of rice agriculture that starts with these acorn gatherers uh, on the edges of marshlands. Um, now, working at a number of sites across this region over the last few years, we've been able to, and, and work also by students uh, here and students in Beijing who I've helped to supervise uh, somewhat. Um, we have a sequence of, of a number of sites shown here and you can see the gradual increase in rice. So the black bar here is just the raw percentage for that site or phase of that site of all the plant remains which are rice. And so you can see this sort of march of rice. So here's the Tenlo Shan levels. Rice is increasing, and then uh, Shan is here, and then subsequent sites. And what declines are the, the, the water chestnuts, the aquatic nuts, the acorns. This, the red is the Urali. Um, and so you can see, and then the other one, there's some gathered fruits and some weedy species and so forth. Um, the weedy species here are probably gathered. They're probably gathered wild foods. But anyways, so you get this sort of march of rice. So if we think of that in terms of a long sequence, not only is the domestication process of rice slow and protracted, but so is the transition from being mainly a gatherer of wild things to being mainly a rice farmer. So that takes many thousands of years as well. And so we can actually start to think about this, again, in terms of the sort of David Harris categories, that we have cultivation early on, but they're mainly gatherers of acorn and water chestnut. And then rice is being domesticated here. The change in spiked bases is happening here. And that process is finished by about here. And then they become real rice farmers. And there's very little wild food in these later sites. Uh, and so we've got this slow domestication and a slow abandonment of wild food. So a protracted process. Um, so that, of course, is that raises the question of whether that kind of pattern is peculiar to rice. Is that something particular to that environment and that transition to farming? Or is it something that happened in other centers of origin? And of course, the best studied center of origin is the Fertile Crescent, so southwestern Asia, uh, the Near East. So it seemed uh, to me that it was time to go back to the Fertile Crescent. Lots of people, of course, are working there and have been working there. Uh, but until a few years ago, I hadn't been out there at all. I'd just been a consumer of, of the literature. But it was time to start. Uh, uh, some work in the Fertile Crescent to see how it panned out. So in the last few years, I've become involved in a, num in a few projects. These are a couple sites. Chattahuyuk, a very famous site that the Institute's been involved with for a number of years. Uh, Jarmo in Kurdistan, which is a new project that we're just starting, hopefully. Uh, this is from a sort of pilot season a couple of years ago. It's a very different environment from the one in the Lower Yangtze. It's not green and wet with waterlogged preservation. It's dry and dusty. But on the other hand, it is a, it is a center for the early development of of farming and one that has a, a very rich data set of, of published material. And I realize that this is a horrendous slide, really. But anyway, this was an attempt uh, uh, for me to just go through kind of some of the easily accessible published reports and do play the same sort of game of looking at what proportion are crops versus what proportion are wild gathered things. And so in this case, the red are the crops, meaning cereals and legumes, things like lentils and peas that come from the Near East. Uh, and the the, the blacks and the dark blues are gathered nuts and nutlets, so potentially sort of starchy staples, things like wild pistachio nuts and knotweed seeds, and the grays are other wild things. And the thing you'll notice is in the epipaleolithic and much of the early pre-pottery Neolithic age, so the very early phases, actually the proportion of the seed assemblage that's made up of the crops is very, very small. It's a minority. 
And it kind of fluctuates through a lot of the pre-pottery Neolithic until you get to the end of the Neolithic. Once you get into the ceramic and the Bronze Age period, assemblages are kind of 90, 95% crops. And there's very little of the wild stuff, very little of the stuff that looks like wild food. And so that suggests to me that there is a kind of parallel to China in that the, the abandonment of all these wild foods was a very gradual, protracted process. And of course, these are sites drawn from a lot of different countries and regions, and this should be looked at on a kind of regional basis. But I think there's a broad pattern that, which is parallel. So it suggests this protracted transition from uh, the protracted abandonment of gathered foods and the protracted movement to a reliance on cultivated foods. Um, and the Fertile Crescent region, of course, is famous for its wild cereals and things, but it's rich in potential alternative resources, these wild resources. So things like gathered fruits, like uh, figs and wild grapes and capers and hackberries and, and wild plums, but also small grained grasses, small legumes, and these, these wetland knot, uh, nutlets, so the knotweeds and the sedges that grow in the valleys, which seem to be used or turn up in large quantities at some of these early sites, as well as nuts, wild almonds, pistachia, and acorns, of course. Um, so we have a slow transition from uh, gathering to farming. What about the domestication rate? Well, other people at the same time had been starting to question whether domestication was fast. And there was an important 2006 paper by uh, George Wilcox, a, a scholar based in, a scholar who was a student of Dimbleby at the Institute, actually. So there's an institute who's based in France who'd questioned whether it was rapid already. Uh, but this is a, a sort of updated compilation looking at the rates of change of, from wild type seed dispersal to domesticated type seed dispersal in rice, so rice is here. And here so these three dots are Tenlo Shan, and this is rice in a kind of longer sequence now of, of data that we have for the lower Yangtze. And these are the wheats and barley, so red is einkorn wheat, blue is barley, green is a bit of ember. And so what you can see is actually there's a very slow change from being predominantly wild type seed dispersal to fully domesticated in the Near Eastern crops as well. Now what's interesting is when you look at other things that people have changed in crops, probably un unintentionally, one of them is grain size. So grains have tended to get fatter with domestication. That's changing at around the same period. And so that's shown on this lower graph in which you have, again, the same sort of color coding rice grains from the lower Yangtze, uh, barley, immer, and einkorn wheat, uh, breadth or, or thickness in the case of immer. And those are changing gradually over the same sort of period. And where the color stops is where they kind of level off. So if you follow, uh, the barley here goes up, and then it kind of levels off and just fluctuates along. So actually, after about uh, eight or 9,000 years ago, the size of barley grains changes negligibly up to the present day. But it changes a lot in these first few thousand years of cultivation. So that means that there's really an episode where things are evolving as domesticated plants. Uh, and these things are evolving as part of these different traits are, are changing as part of one process. And of course, that implies that this period has key changes in human behavior, human management practices, which are driving this process. And there are interesting parallels between these different crops in different regions. So the people cultivating rice and the people cultivating barley were not copying each other, but they're leading to similar results. So there's a parallel evolution. Uh, and this is true, of the, and the, this, these kinds of rates can be looked at for lots of different crops. So we've started a, a project that's sort of gathering existing data for lots of plants, so North American sunflowers and pit seed, goosefoot, that's seed coat thickness, mung beans from South India, uh, soybeans from China. And you see these, these periods of, of gradual increase in seed size. 
uh, in all of the ore, in this case, seed coat thickness declining in, in a lot of these things. So we can use these to make estimates of rates of change and to see how similar they are. Uh, and, I, and I think that's interesting because it'll, it gives us a timeline on which we can think about the domestication process as a kind of timeline in which we can then map the human practices that are driving this process and the social changes that are uh, going along with it. So, but how do we compare these different crops? How do you compare measurements on soybeans with measurements on barley grains? Well, there is a method that uh, I've borrowed from some evolutionary biologists, which is something called the Haldane rate, which basically looks at a shift in the distribution of a population in, in terms of a measurable phenotypic trait. Uh, and so, uh, it's, it's, it's expressed in fractions of one. If, if a population mode had shifted by an entire standard deviation in one generation, that would be a Haldane rate of one, which is a massive change. This is a Haldane, the shift of this much in a population distribution is a Haldane rate of 0.1, right? So, uh, but this allows us then to put all these different measurements of different species on that kind of similar scale. Uh, and it's the sort of best method we have going. So this, is a, this, is, this shows sort of what that looks like. So here's the rate of change in non-shattering for uh, einkorn, wheat, barley, and rice. And so this is looking at the amount of change, the amount of shift in that population distribution over time. It takes into account the whole range of variation uh, scaled from the start of our domestication, so our earliest data to whenever it takes place. And they're roughly similar kinds of lines. There's variation here, obviously, but they're similar orders of magnitude. And we've now done, looked at that for wherever there's data available for a number of crops. And you can see the non-shattering on the faster end and change in seed size is all roughly similar, actually, in, across different crops. So this implies that there's some underlying processes which are making this similar. And those, are, those processes involve both the kind of genetic constraints of how these plants evolve. And they also, uh, I think, there are also constraints in terms of the human systems of manipulation and use of the plants and the human demands for subsistence and, and uh, sort of agricultural productivity, which also are, are driving this. And so one of the things I think uh, which is yet to be done is to work out exactly how those factors, those human factors and the plant genetic factors interact um, to create parallelism and when, when we actually have difference between them. So that's one way to look at the pace of domestication is to look at how individual crops have changed in their trajectories of domestication. Um, but I thought if we wanted to step back and think about it at a global scale, we also need to think about the pace of domestication in terms of the number of domestications that are taking place over time. Uh, so this is my, my first effort to try to plot over time at a global scale grain crop domestications. And by grain crops, I'm including cereals and pseudo cereals like buckwheat and quinoa and pulses, so all of your grain legumes. Um, and uh, not all of them have equally good data, so it's time I've had to leave out completely. But this includes 66 species now globally. Um, and some of them we can infer pre-domestication cultivation, some of them can't, that's why this is kind of small. Some of them we can chart a domestication period, so a period in which we can map changes. Some of them we can't, but most of them we can say it's domesticated by this date. So in some sense that's a kind of minimal, minimal age, it must be domesticated by this date. And once it's domesticated it moves from being uh, a crop that's undergoing change to being one that is, a, that is a crop that's domesticated. And after domestication, it changes through varietal diversification and local adaptation, but it isn't changing as a, from, uh, kind of changing from being wild to domesticated, it's other changes. So that's what, what I'm calling post-domestication. So the green is a kind of species that are already domesticated in the post-domestication phase over time. So this is years 
um, VP. Uh, and so what you can see as well, there's a lot that's happening a bit later on. Uh, so if you think back to some of the orthodoxies that, that, that I entered this uh, lecture and I sort of entered this field with, which is that agriculture originates early at the start of the Holocene and it's a rapid process. It doesn't look very early Holocene and rapid when you look at it in this way, it seems to me. Uh, and there's kind of four phases. There is an early Holocene phase. Uh, and if we, we can actually work out sort of average rates of numbers of species domesticated, so how many grain species domesticated in the early Holocene, 4.1 per thousand years. Um, then oddly, in, after about 8,000 years ago, things level off. There's no really good new domestications for a while. And uh, then you get into the later mid-Holocene and it, things really take off and you're up to 9.8 species per millennium being domesticated. And then things slow down and basically stop. So in the last sort of two and a half thousand years, there's been almost no grain crop domestications. Uh, and I think that that's an interesting observation too, which I'll come back to uh, in, in just a minute. Um, and so we can also then play the same game with domesticated animals. So here's a chart trying to do the same with animals. Uh, and I've put some icons just to represent a few of the, the species, not all uh, the animals I've put up them all, the plants I've just put a few. So here you've got your wheats and barleys and maize and your Chinese millets and uh, rice and azuki beans and then your sort of African and Indian millets and buckwheat and things later on. And then here you've got your animals, you can probably recognize what most of them are. It's a similar kind of pattern. There are some early Holocene domesticates, your sheep, goat, cattle, pig, and then there's lots of middle Holocene, later mid-Holocene, all of your yaks and camels and guinea pigs and llamas and so forth. Um, so there's a kind of similarity to them, and both of them look particularly rapid in what I would call the later mid-Holocene, so the last five or five and a half thousand years. So at a global scale, that's a really key period in terms of the origins and diversification of agriculture. Um, and then it slows down a lot in the last few thousand years. So I've been pondering why that might be, and I'm going to make a suggestion now as to why that is. So we can try to think about this in terms of maps. So if we just take the old world, we can sort of map. So the early Holocene, there's Fertile Crescent, early cultivation. There's probably a bit of cultivation of millets in China that's still a little bit controversial in a few places. Um, if we move forward to sort of 6,000 BC, 8,000 years ago, this is really the period that's just seen the what we could call the aceramic Neolithic dispersal from around the Near East. We've got early ceramics or aceramic Neolithic from Pakistan to Turkmenistan to Greece. Um, and by this period, you have a well-established well uh, pre-Yangshao millet cultivating traditions across North China, and maybe a little bit of early cultivation of rice here and there. Uh, if we move forward to 6,000 years ago, you've had your, your big expansion of the Near Eastern a crop package into Europe and North Africa, up the Nile um, uh, at this period. And millets, rice is, is now established in the Yangtze. Uh, and then if you move forward to about 5,000 years ago, you have a bit more expansion. So places like northern Ethiopia and Sudan and Arabia for, uh, and northeast, northeastern Europe being taken into the kind of Near Eastern expansion and expansion of millets and rice, uh, the things that we would call the Chinese archaeologists would call the Ma Jiao uh, expansion and uh, the kind of Chulman of, of Korea becoming uh, agricultural with millets and so forth. Um, and then the next period is really where all these systems start to mesh in together. And it's, it's sort of 4,000 years ago or a little bit more is what we could think of as the period of Bronze Age world systems, the period of really prehistoric globalization. This is when wheat and sheep and cattle from Western Asia first get into central China. 
This is when Chinese crops like the Chinese millet start turning up in Pakistan and India and Iran, and you even get Chinese millet in Nubia. Uh, and so, and you start to get crops of African origin like sorghum and pearl millet turning up at sites in India. So about 4,000 years ago, and maybe a few hundred years older than that in some cases, you're starting to get this period of, of what I would call globalization. Uh, and, that, and that, of course, continues and you get increased networking over time. That's the same period when domestication of primary grain crops stops. So once you get networking and the kind of free movement of these cross-between zones, people stop domesticating new grain crops and new staple foods. And that suggests to me that maybe it's actually much easier to just borrow somebody else's domesticate than domesticate something from the environment as a staple food, take it from the wild, because it's such a process to domesticate. Uh, and so if you have contact and influence, then you're more likely to borrow your neighbor's crops than to domesticate your own. And this suggests to me that when we go back to the beginning, that we probably are looking at much more many more independent centers than people have accepted, because people have wanted to look for influence. Uh, but when you have influence, you see more borrowing and a, and a reduction in the number of domestication. So we have these real networking, especially between India and Africa. It's been well studied in recent years. Um, and the Sea Links project from Oxford has been working on that. And, and uh, the, the various projects in Cambridge have been working on the spread of things to and from China over the kind of early Silk Road in this period. So there's been a lot of interesting work recently that's been documenting these globalization processes. And of course, this same period also sees the sort of riceification of Southeast Asia. Okay, so if we come back to thinking about comparisons and just sticking with the old world, uh, you can ask a number of questions. Is the origins of agriculture synchronous and early Holocene? Doesn't look like it to me from the data we've got. Uh, there are a few places that are early Holocene, but most of them are not. Uh, are the causes the same? Well, once you remove that big Pleistocene-Holocene climatic driver, I don't think we have a single cause that we can look at that's driving everything. You have to look at a, a sequence of causes. There may be similar factors about environmental change and demographic carrying capacity and social competition, but when they come into play varies by environment and region. And what this shows, this timeline tries to show is trajectories, if we put the origins of cultivation on trajectories with other things. So the origins of livestock in that region, the origins of sedentary villages, the earliest pottery, and of course we have very different trajectories. So some parts of the world are sedentary very early and make pottery very late. Other parts of the world make pottery very early, like uh, Africa, and have sedentism and cultivation very late. Um, and you see a similar pattern in Eastern Asia. So there's very different trajectories. And so that allows us to start to think about what some of the motivations and drivers are and how they're different. So even though we have parallelism and domestication processes, there are differences in the underlying cultural patterns. Uh, and one of the big patterns in, 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 I think, globally, but in the old world, is, is, has to do with food processing technology. So some parts of the world, especially the Near East, in this case, it has aceramic agriculture. So pottery as a cooking technology is an epiphenomenon. It's an afterthought. It has nothing to do with early grain processing. It's all about grinding and ovens and baking and roasting. Uh, whereas other parts of the world, the, the, savanna, the Sahara savanna zone of Africa and in Eastern Asia, you have pre-agricultural pottery, often millennia, even 10,000 years in many parts of China, pottery precedes agriculture. So that when you start to cultivate and domesticate crops, those crops have to fit into traditions of cooking, boiling, and steaming. And so this is also determining something about crop selection, perhaps, in some of these regions, why one species and not another, perhaps. And also, um, it implies that we have different uh, 
social trajectories. And I think the challenge for archaeology and archaeobotany as part of that is to start to piece together these trajectories and start to understand what are the different uh, regional <coughs> cultural and environmental factors that are driving these differences, and then how that sets up subsequent cultural differences that persist over the long term. So if we come back to the three orthodoxies I started with, um, I would suggest that we have some new heterodoxies, or maybe they'll become the new orthodoxies, I don't know. There were several centers of independent origin, I would say at least 20. And within these, it often, when you look in detail, even at the Fertile Crescent, the processes are often a mosaic. So there's not a single place where everything originated. There's a number of several foci where things are happening in parallel within each of these kind of global centers. Domestication was a protracted, we're talking two, or th two to 3,000 years. That's 150 human generations. That's a long process. It's not an event. It's an episode. Um, and it's one that then we can study. And of course, the social motivations during that period are potentially changing. So what's driving people at the beginning may be different than what's driving them halfway through. And subsequent evolution, the varietal diversification was much more local. Um, and there's much less significant change that happens after that domestication episode is over. Uh, and also the transition from dependence on wild foods to dependence on cultivated foods is at least as slow, taking thousands of years. Uh, and very relatively few domestications are at the beginning of the Holocene, 11,000 years ago. Most of them, if you take it on a species count, as I showed, happened between three and 6,000 years ago. And then there's very little in the last few thousand years. And I suggest that, uh, that intercultural networking is actually working against new domestications of potential staple foods. Um, so to sum up, uh, thanks for listening, if you're still awake. Um, uh, I, I'd like to suggest that archaeobotany is a fundamental part of archaeology, and it's one that moves between the micro, the minutiae of rachis remains, and millet identification, and the, the detailed ecology of, of how crops and weeds interact in a field, to one that tells us about landscapes, human landscapes, and global patterns of, of the kind of anthro-humanization of landscapes and, and ecological systems. Uh, and if archaeology is the study of uh, the material record of long-term human history, archaeobotany is an essential component to that because it gives us primary data on how people have made the earth itself a sort of artifact. Uh, and very much some of the issues that uh, my predecessors have been interested in, the Neolithic Revolution, um, the, the Gordon Childs and Dimblebees and David Harris's are still very much uh, alive and, and worthy of study um, many decades later. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dorian, for that um, brilliant, as ever, an excellent lecture. lecture. Um, it, it had to be brilliant because actually there's a competing lecture that I've come away from in Cambridge today given by Dame Jessica Rawson in the series on her Slade lectures on art and culture in China. And a number, this is a series of lectures, and in recent weeks, a big audience has come to hear about art styles and metalwork and jade. And they were, some of them were quite surprised when Jessica explained, in order to understand the mind, the aesthetic mind of uh, Chinese communities, you have to read Dorian Fuller and Mike Rowlands on what they were eating and the texture of their food and how they were eating. And she was absolutely um, right. And I think it's great credit to one of our leading art, art historians that they took that, that uh, holistic view of 
human creativity. But of course, it's also enormous credit to Professor Fuller um, for the work he's done to make not just archaeologists but art historians aware of the work. I don't think there's any leading art historian who would have talked about archaeobotanists uh, that, that time back. And now, as we've seen from Dorian's lecture, Dorian's always taken a, um, a, 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 a very global perspective on the past. When Dorian came to Cambridge, about the same time, there was a, there was a, um, a, a student who was starting work on the Philippines and was asking, uh, do I do this cave in the North Island or that site in the South Island? And at the same time, uh, Dorian came and says, well, either I'm going to do India or I'm going to do Africa. Um, whichever one I did with my PhD, I'll do the other one later. And, uh, and, and the, the amazing thing is that's what happened and more besides. And I think uh, Dorian's global perspective we've seen in this lecture is really important and the comparative perspective is really important. I would say generally there's a number of archaeological scientists who can take a global perspective but they kind of back, back off cultural agency and action in doing so. Um, there was a time, as we all know in archaeology, when it was easy to be a world archaeologist. Now it's become more difficult because we're more critical about the process. And I think it's really important, um, a really significant part of, of, of Dorian's work is that, that Dorian doesn't back off from that, and as well as being a world-leading archaeobotanist, is always connecting with language history, cultural studies, with uh, human agency in action. And that is um, really important. Now, at the start of Dorian's lecture, he mentioned this date of 1936, uh, when uh, Arthur Tansley first coined the term ecosystem, which shows the youth of that area of study. And I believe that was the same year in which Mortimer Wheeler um, brought uh, Frederick Soyner to the newly established Institute of Archaeology. And so that's quite an interesting coincidence. And what I would argue is since that time, since the origins of the word ecosystem, uh, this great institute has, without break, uh, maintained a world lead in how we think about and understand human ecosystems through time. And I think that, that, uh, that prominence of the institute in that respect will unquestionably continue with the kind of brilliance of the work we've heard from uh, Dorian today. In terms of contemporary issues, in, in Professor Shannon's introduction, we heard about some of, uh, of uh, Dorian's connections with contemporary issues. I, I wanted to um, mention another one, which is more or less in the subtext of what uh, we heard in the lecture, and that is that um, one of the things about our species is there's a, there's a contradiction in our species that on the one hand, if you count up the number of plants that people both recognize somewhere in the world and regularly ingest somewhere in the world, uh, 10,000 species is a kind of um, is a conservative estimate. And if you look at it quantitatively, half of what goes into human mouths today is down to three species, wheat, rice, and maize. Now, there's a lot of people with that. There's a lot of disagreement about what future foods are about. But there's a lot of sense that in order to think about future foods, we need to change that spread and diversity. And then if you look at where knowledge lies, 
um, agronomic knowledge is very much focused also on those big crops. And when we start talking about crops like Brachia remota and find out who's thinking about them, who's working, uh, um, working on them and thinking about everything from their biology to the human use, it's not actually going on in departments of agriculture. It's going on here at uh, the Institute. And, uh, and if one looks at um, the range of species that Dorian has talked about over the last hour, the majority of those are very poorly understood, even from a scientific level. And that's, I wanted to highlight that other very significant importance of uh, Professor for the work, not just for the past, for, but for understanding the future. So thank you very much, Dorian, for a brilliant lecture and, um, and, and, sh and sharing with us your incredibly important work and um, don't, don't fall over and clap out before you do masses more because I'm sure there's great stuff to come. Thank you, Dorian. Thank you.